Uh, today, Rory is out of town, and I was blessed with the opportunity um, on a text from Rory to get ready to teach this Sunday. Um, and that is a blessing, and it is a privilege. In this time of year, as we roll towards the end of 2015 and, and we finished our Christmas celebration, in a spirit of rejoicing, in a spirit of, of love, it's, it's always wonderful to end the year off. And as I was praying as to what direction the Lord would have me teach or preach, um, what passage he would lead us to as a church uh, this last Sunday of the year. I wanted it so much to be in a spirit of rejoicing, so much to be a, a spirit of blessing. Uh, as we roll through the year through, through the Bible, as we do here at Calvary Chapel, go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, there's a lot of exhortation we get an opportunity to to listen to and to encourage one another in. And it's a wonderful privilege to be able to take some time aside at the end of the year and just proclaim blessings over our family, over our church, over one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, we, after prayer and uh, just on my knees searching, was led to the epistle of Peter, his first epistle. So for those of you that don't have Bibles, raise your hands. Uh, we're going to be going through some scripture. Um, if you don't have Bibles with you, really, we'll have somebody in the back there hand out Bibles to you where you can follow along. I don't have a lot of the passages just due to this Christmas time and everybody's busyness set up to be on the screens. So if you can, um, open up your Bible to the first epistle of Peter. Uh, Peter what is, to me, a very, very interesting study. We all have our favorite characters, probably, in the Bible as we read through the Gospels and we read through the epistles and we see the characteristics of, of the men um, and the women whom Christ has chosen to call to follow him. The one thing about Peter, I've got to say, is that he reflected the love of Christ as much as was poured out upon him. In this final blessing in chapter 5 of 1 Peter, Peter reflects Christ's love for him, that amazing, unconditional love, sacrificial love, um, mercy and grace poured out upon an unworthy individual, whom we all are. Peter was one who was uh, described probably best as a man's man. He was rough. Uh, he was a hard worker. He was a fisherman by trade. He was um, very strong-willed. What he believed to be right, he was willing to die for, which, as he was walking with Christ, sometimes was, sometimes was good, sometimes was bad. There were times he felt the rebuke and chastisement of Christ. There was many times that Peter had felt the warm love and mercy poured out upon him. He was encouraged in Matthew chapter 16 when Christ asked him, who do you believe the Christ to be? He was prayed over by Christ in Luke chapter 22. As Christ said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has asked that he may have you and sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for thee. Peter was a recipient of an amazing, amazing amount of mercy and grace. And as he ends this first epistle, as he ends this first epistle, um, he reflects 
the love that has been shined on him, that has been um, shown and poured out in an abundance upon Peter. And he doesn't just soak it in as a sponge. He doesn't just take it as if it were love that flowed down through a conduit into a reservoir. And Peter was that reservoir of all grace and mercy and love. Peter's response was he reflected that grace and reflected that mercy upon those whom God has put in his circumstances, in his path, that he was discipling. If we take a look at, uh, just to recap what was going on through the epistle of 1 Peter, we see a lot of exhortation. Peter began and, and showed people what it looked like, what was, what was the calling upon their lives to follow Christ, to follow Jesus. Of course, all of it was based upon what Jesus had done at the cross, all the work accomplished by he who gave it all and bled and died that we might be saved. Even in chapter 5, as we work our way to today's scripture, in chapter 5, we see that he exhorts his readers, his brothers and sisters in Christ. In verse 5 and 6, he exhorts his readers to be humble. He exhorts them to humility. In verse 7, we see him exhorting his readers to, be, to not be anxious. Verse 8 and 9, he exhorts his readers to be strong in adversity regarding spiritual warfare. And then in verse 10 and 11, which is our, our text for today, Peter takes a moment, and out of all of this, he bends his knees and he commends his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to the God of all grace. He takes a second and, and probably preaches or blesses in this benediction uh, one of the largest blessings that I've read in Scripture that was probably based on the most realistic view of what it means to follow Jesus this side of heaven. And it came from probably the most affectionate heart that was born out of affliction, born out of despair, grown in reconciliation with Christ, restoration with Christ. So let's read today's, today's verse that we're going to study. Verse 10 and 11 says, But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see, one thing that Peter understood, and I just want to point out quickly, Peter understood that as as being a minister of Christ, of which we all in this room are being equipped to do the work of the ministry, according to Ephesians chapter 4. For those of us that are involved in discipleship, of which we're commanded to do so, whether we are disciples, whether we're being discipled, whether we're making disciples, we must fulfill two separate offices, two separate areas of responsibility. The first one is that Peter needed to, with all importance, speak on behalf of Christ to the people he's discipling. 
first responsibility, right? Second responsibility is that he was to pray and intercede to Christ on behalf of the people he's discipling. You see, discipleship isn't just teaching, exhorting, counseling, comforting. There's a hidden side to discipleship of which Peter knew extremely well. And that is prayer, intercession. He took this time to lift up and to encourage and exhort and commend the people that were under his, um, his wings in this discipleship to the God of all grace. Even Paul, when he was teaching the uh, elders at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, in verse 27, you know, he declared that he has given to them and taught them the whole counsel of God. But Paul was made keenly aware, I believe, that that was fulfilling only half of his sacred commission. The other half would be done behind closed doors, by himself, on his knees, imploring the God of all grace on behalf of those who were in Paul's charge. So let's take a look, as we look at at these verses, verse 10 and 11, I want to point out to you three main points uh, that I want us to just keep in mind as we travel through from uh, phrase to phrase through 10 and 11. Number one is the pattern which God designs. Number two is the power which God displays. And number three is the praise which God deserves. Let's start with number one, the pattern which God designed. It's described in order in three words. So take a look at verse 10, and let me just point out to you maybe a little bit of a hint as to the direction that we're going. Three words stand out. In verse 10, we have the word grace, then glory, then we have suffering. So let's begin. The first phrase we look at in verse 10 is, May the God of all grace. This pattern that God designs for his children emerges out of who God is. God is the God of all grace. Any grace that happens in this universe, anywhere, anyhow, is under the sovereign, compassionate touch of God. He is the God of all grace. For judgment, he gives us acquittal. For punishment, he gives us welcome. For death, he gives us life. All accomplished by the Holy Son of God and his work at the cross of Calvary. We've taken a look at at some pictures of what grace is. Even Rory, as he was teaching last Sunday, as he was teaching what godly sorrow draws people to repentance, and he went through a list of the war criminals of the Nazi army of Germany. We had a chance to see, you know, a a wonderful detailed description of how godly sorrow draws them into repentance. But we also had a chance to see at that very same time the God of all grace reaching into the heart of unworthy men, transforming lives, transforming hearts, and bringing them to know Christ. We hear of, you know, um, the author of Amazing Grace. We hear that all the time. And I don't want to get deep into that. You guys know it. His name's John Newton, who was saved out of being one of the most cruel, evil men of his time as a slave trader. 
and of course wrote the song Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, who saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, and now I'm found, was blind, and now I see. But let's take a look at a couple of new ones. You know, if, if you have your Bibles and you're ready, and you don't have to flip around with me all the time, but in Luke chapter 19, we see a story of an individual named Zacchaeus. And just to kind of recap who Zacchaeus was, he was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Um, in that particular point in time, this guy wasn't um, a holy man. He wasn't a devout man. Um, in the description and at that time, he was an evil man that ripped people off, took more than what was requested of him, and was touched in this passage in Luke chapter 19 by the God of all grace. He was planted a desire, there was a desire planted in his heart to where he wanted to see Jesus. Kind of a funny story because he's short, he can't see around the crowd. Jesus is coming so he has to get to a tree, climb up in it so he can see Christ. But his heart's desire is he wants to see Jesus. And if we take a look at what Jesus' response is to Zacchaeus as he notices him, he says in verse 5, he says, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Skipping down to verse 9 and 10, he says, Today salvation has come to this house, because he is also a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. One thing I want to point out is Jesus did not say, you know, go clean up your act first. Okay? Go get your life straightened out. Make recompense for everything that you've done wrong. When you get your act clean, then I'll come dine with you. Then I'll come to your house. He didn't do that. And the picture is from the God of all grace. Maybe a little bit more graphic illustration as you flip over from Luke into Luke 15. And we all know the story of, of the, what we call the prodigal son, right? Well, maybe we haven't looked at it this way. And let me just kind of bring up a point. As the younger son had gotten his inheritance, and he took that inheritance, and he spent it on wild women, on drinking, probably the drugs of the day, was broken and destitute after a time of partying. And all he had to do as a job that would take him in and maybe put a roof over his head was feed the pigs. You know, it says in verse 16, it says, And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. In verse 18, we start to see the God of all grace reaching into the heart of this young son. And we see repentance come about. In 18, he says, I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And we know what happened. You know, as the son repented, as he made an about face, a 180 degree turn from the lifestyle he was living to come see, come back to, to face the father. We see that the father saw him from a long way off and he ran down the road and embraced this young man. Now here's why I say maybe a graphic illustration. Let's picture of where this young man came from. Do you remember how he was living? Do you remember what his last abode was? It was with the pigs, it was with the swine. All he wanted to do was eat the pods that were fed to the swine. You know he didn't smell good. You know he was dirty. You know he needed a new change of clothes. But we didn't see the father as a representative in this, in this story by Christ. 
running up to him and saying, hey, listen, let's go clean you up. Let's put some new clothes on you and that kind of stuff. And then I'll embrace you. No, the God of all grace took him into his arms. And he loved on him and he hugged him. He embraced him. And then he said, let's put a new robe on you. Let's put sandals on your feet. Let's put a ring on your hand. It's time to celebrate. You've come home. Listen, this is the God of all grace. The very first phrase in our our teaching this morning is, may the God of all grace. There's no one in this room looking across, knowing most of you, There is no one in this room that has a need, a concern, a longing, or a burden that cannot be matched by the God of all grace. This prayer of Peter's started with who God is. And he's the God of all grace. He's the God of quickening grace. He's the God of convincing grace pardoning grace, believing grace, comforting grace, supporting and sustaining grace. And probably the prettiest picture that I can think of in scripture is Titus chapter 3, beginning with verse 4. It says, when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the God of all grace. In Peter's benediction here, it says, May the God of all grace who called us. First Thessalonians chapter two, verse twelve. You know, back up and, and begin in verse ten. It says, Paul is, is speaking. He says, You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you should walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now the calling, from my perspective, being called out of sin into God's grace, is the very first drop of mercy that we get an opportunity to taste. It's the first drop of mercy given to a dying sinner. It's the first golden link in the chain of eternal mercies. It's the first thing we know of Christ, is that calling upon our hearts. And most of you in this room that have been called by Christ to surrender your lives to him have felt that personal touch. First we hear Jesus saying, you know, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden, right? And then the sweet spirit of God makes this calling personal. Not just the general calling, but a personal conviction on your heart. And he moves us to obey the calling, and we come. And for me, and I I use this verse a lot, but for me, that personal calling is described perfectly in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1, where it says, Thus said he who created you and he who formed you, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. Have you been personally called? Have you been personally um, touched by the God of all grace to surrender everything you are and to follow Jesus for what he did at the cross? If so, are you walking worthy of that great calling? 
We need to ask ourselves these things. In our in Peter's prayer, it says, but may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory. So we looked in this pattern which God designs. We looked at grace. Now let's take a look at glory. What does he mean that we've been called to his eternal glory? It's the blessing of God's eternal presence. He already described back just a chapter in chapter 4 that the suffering church has already tasted the presence of God's glory. It says in verse 14 of chapter 4 of 1 Peter, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. May the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory. Paul speaks in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. He says, Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. If you have been called, are you aware of what? you've been called into? You know, some of the worship songs that we had an opportunity, I don't remember which one it is, but that we had an opportunity to, to sing prior to our teaching kind of described a little bit about that, that calling upon our lives. Here's the way it seems like the progression of calling comes according to Scripture. First, we've been called to the house of conviction. And we've been called to see our sin as sin. Our eyes have been laid open. And the calling of God, the God of all grace, who's touched our hearts, brings us into an understanding of the conviction of sin. I think next, we're called to Calvary's hill. And we're called to see the atoning, sacrificial sacrifice of Christ being hung on the cross, perfect, pure, holy, and blameless, shedding his blood paying the price for our redemption and the penalty for our sin. Then we're called, according to this wonderful blessing, we're called to his eternal glory. We're called to the eternal glory of Yahweh. We're called to enter through the veil that has been torn from top to bottom, into the presence of glory, into the beauty of the holiness of Yahweh, all of his majesty, all of his beauty. Psalm 27.4, David's plea says, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. So may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. There is no benediction, there is no promise so sweet to the ears of a Christian that does not mention the name of Jesus. There is no comfort, there is no confidence, there is no peace outside of the realm of the cross of Christ. When in this this prayer of Peter's, When he says, may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. When we hear the name of Christ, we understand that grace came through Christ. 
We understand that the calling came through Christ. We understand that glory comes through Christ. And we know and we're being uh, uh, brought to an awareness that the blood of Christ is sufficient for every blessing. Jesus is deserving, but I'm not. Now he has taken my place on the cross and in victory saying it is finished through faith I can claim the merits of Christ and his righteousness that brings me into the presence of God's glory all things come through Christ so as we take a look at the last descriptive word in this pattern which God designed, we look at the word suffering. It says, May the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while. First, let's take a look at the, the description of the length of time that we're called to suffer. It's a while. Listen to Alistair Begg, you know, with his Scottish accent. He describes it as a wee while. And in the light of eternity, it is. It is. While suffering is transient, it comes and it goes. Eternity is forever. Peter described, if we flip back to chapter 1 of this epistle, he described suffering as he spoke to his, his listeners, his readers. In verse 6, it says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. He begins this epistle with the realization and the truth of suffering in a believer's life. In verse 7, he goes to portray the prophet that comes out of suffering. As he says, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's acknowledge this one truth, that even if we were to live to be the right old age of 100 years old, It is still just a puff of smoke in the wind, in the light of eternity. This life is short. Suffering is temporary. There is no bypassing of the work of suffering for believers' spiritual maturity. And Peter was close enough to Christ as he was traveling with Christ, with Christ, going around with Jesus for the three years, three plus years ministry, proclaiming that the kingdom of God has come. He knew the reality of suffering. And I'm sure began to understand the wisdom of God in the nature of sufferings benefits to a believer there's more spiritual progress in our tears sometimes than there is our laughter you know the voices of the world will tell us you know run away when you're facing uh, uh, suffering run away run away suffering must be avoided at all costs it must be counterproductive to our growth as Christians. And when we're suffering for our faith, the world says, look, it's much, much easier to compromise. Much, much easier to set aside your, your values, your faith, the word of God, than it is to continue to suffer. But then hear the Lord say, 
as he speaks in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, as he says, I am able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask or think. Alistair Begg is quoted saying this in this section. He says, the Bible here is declaring that human experience, or declaring what human experience confirms. Christian faith does not remove us from the painful experience of life in a fallen world. It is faulty thinking, many times emerging from flaky preaching, which finds those who name the name of Christ scurrying around either denying the fact of suffering, thereby making liars of themselves, or seeking to run from suffering, assuming that down that street where there is none of that experience, there will be progress and blessing in their lives. Sometimes the very thing which we try to run away from would be that which makes us. Let's remember this one truth, that while being personally attacked by the enemy, we are being personally perfected by the Lord. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. God patterns the design and he does all things well. His pattern, as we see in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10 and 11, is grace, glory, and suffering. So let's let God be God. Let's let God be God in all of his wisdom and all of his majesty, in our church, in our homes, in our hearts, and through our sufferings. We went through the pattern which God designed. Now let's take a look at the second point in the power which God displays. It's described in four words in verse 10. It's described as perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. And all of these words speak of strength and they speak of resoluteness. I think that's a word, resoluteness. Starting to feel like Rory, you know, when you mispronounce something. And, um, the, first, uh, the first description of the power which God displays is perfect. Perfect in the Greek is a word that's pronounced katartizo. It means to qualify fully, to complete. You see, God is in the business of taking broken men and women, and restoring them to wholeness. Mending them back together, making them complete. Romans chapter 8 verse 29 says that we are to be conformed into the image of the Holy Son of God. We're to be, re we're to be restored to properly reflect the image of God that we were created to be Back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. As it says, let us make man in our image. In Hebrews chapter 13, we see the writer of Hebrews making a similar um, exhortation, a similar benediction. As he says, may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Spurgeon says regarding being perfected, he says, you must pass through tribulation that through the Spirit it may act as a refining fire to you. That pure, holy, purged, and washed, you may stand before the face of your God, rid of every imperfection and delivered from every corruption within. 
We understand that this is a process. We understand it's called sanctification, this side of heaven. We understand we don't achieve this. But God is in the business of performing that work. And in Peter's blessing to his people, he prays that they be perfected. God's promises are true. He is faithful. And after we had suffered a while, he will perfect us. In God's wisdom, there is no other way to reach this stage of of perfection as we stand before the throne of grace without suffering. So the second word we take a look at is establish. It says, may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect and establish you. In the Greek, it is sterizo. It means to set fast, to render steadfast. You see, perfection is not enough if we're not established. As an analogy, one of the analogies I read as I was studying is, take a look at God's magnificent display of nature as you look at the rainbow after a a rainstorm. And the sun peeks through and you see perfect, perfect arches of color perfectly graduated through the color spectrum. Gorgeous, perfect. But as the sun heats up, it soon blows away. We have a need to be established, to be set fast, to render steadfast. It's a very, very necessary desire of the believer to not only be perfected for God to prepare us for his kingdom no matter the cost but to be established in Colossians chapter 2 it says as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving, rooted and built up in him and established. Psalm 16, 8, David pens down these words and he says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. But remember this, Remember God's pattern that he designs. That we cannot be established except by and through suffering in our lives. The third uh, descriptive word describing the power which God displays is strengthen. A fairly easy one to study. Strengthen, um, to pronounce it's a little hard, it's sthenu, like S-T-H-E-N-O-O. I think I said that right. It just means to impart strength. And some may be fixed and established, some of us Christians, but we lack force and we lack vigor. The will may be right. The intentions may be right. The heart may be right, but there's, there's something else that's needed. There's strength that is needed. Maybe this particular Christian has been fed an incomplete or, or weak gospel. Maybe there's still a sin within that has its grip, a hold of this Christian. But whatever it is, let the prayer of Peter be answered by the God of all grace and then watch as he's strengthened. When Paul had a thorn in the flesh... At the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And he was praying three times that it might depart from him. Paul understood this lesson as well. He said, um, Jesus said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. If we look at the history of Christians that have been blessed by the God of all grace with the presence of the Holy Spirit of God for strength in their lives, we don't have to look far. You can look in Hebrews chapter 11 in the, what do they call it, the hall of faith, right? In verse 32 it says, And what more shall I say, for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, and it goes on and on. Maybe we ought to take a second and remember Saeed Abedini. Okay, still in prison in Iraq for his faith. There is no way that the human man can endure that kind of punishment, that kind of tribulation, that kind of affliction without being strengthened by the God of all grace. It can't happen. But let's still remember these things that this power which God displays in this description of being strengthened can't come without first the suffering. So let's take a look at the last word here. It says, settle you. In the Greek, it's thamiliu. It means to ground, to render firm and unwavering. I don't think being settled is necessarily greater than the other three descriptions from being perfected and established and strengthened. But I do believe from all my study that it's a stair-stepping of sorts, that a gradual attainment of um, being in the process of being perfected and established and and, and of being strengthened does result in being settled. In Psalm 1, it describes what it looks like to the man of faith grounded in the word of God, planted at the edge at the edge of the river, who brings forth its fruit in season, whose leaf shall not wither. And then it talks about the ungodly. In verse 4 it says, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. You see, we pray, and Peter prays here, that we are not just driven away by the wind, but that we are settled, we are grounded. And you know, it's the word of God that is that vital, stabilizing, foundational force in a believer. And it's graphically illustrated in the teaching that we teach our children and children's ministry all the time. Everybody's familiar with this. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 through 27, we take a look at being settled and how strong and powerful the word of God is. It says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. You see, it's not just he who hears, but it's he who puts into application and into practice what you're hearing. You see, our Sunday services here in this church is just stage one of our growth 
as we are disciples and we're making disciples. That's why we have 242 groups. That's why we have core groups. That's why we have yearly Bible reading plans. Is that we would be settled. You see, a Sunday only without any application, without any practice, all that does is make us sermon tasters. And sermon tasters develop their house on the sand. We can take a look at it as an analogy um, of, of a transplanted tree. Take a tree um, that has been transplanted every single year, uprooted, pulled up, replanted. As the owner of that tree, you would doubt, expect any fruit to come of it. And more than likely, you wouldn't be surprised for that tree to just dwindle up and die. Many Christians transplant themselves in their doctrine they believe instead of being grounded in the authoritative word of God. They are swayed by everything that's portrayed as truth by the most recent podcast that they've listened to. Don't get me wrong, I'm not against that. I'm not preaching against that. And God can use that powerfully. But we need to be settled in doctrine. That doctrine's got to be based on the solid, authoritative truth of the word of God. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, it talks about that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Peter's prayer is that we would stand firm, that we would be steadfast, we'd be without compromise. We'd be settled in our doctrine, settled in our faith, settled in God's will, settled in our calling. And that we'd be not moved away from the calling which God has placed upon our lives. But remember, all these things, all this power which God displays comes by his pattern and that is grace, glory, and suffering. Number three, the final point that I've got here is let's take a look at the praise which God deserves. This section in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10 and 11, we go to verse 11 and it says, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever, amen. All honor, all reverence, all majesty, all praise, all worship belong to him. We see it as praise coming from the heavenly hosts as we just finished the Christmas season in Luke chapter 2. Verse 13 says, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. We see in Revelations chapter 4, we see that the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And then you see the 24 elders giving glory to he who is worthy. It says, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you, were create, you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. And it says in verse 11, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Dominion in the Greek is kratos. It means power, strength, might, and force. Ultimate sovereignty. Forever and ever in, in the original language speaks this way. It says to the ages of the ages, which I thought was awesome. 
We get an opportunity to say forever and ever, and it doesn't mean a whole lot sometimes, but we get an opportunity to see what the original language was sometimes, where it says to the ages of the ages, we're talking for a long time. We're talking never ending. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 34, as it speaks of Nebuchadnezzar, it says, And the end, and at the end of time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. If you look at Revelations chapter 5, it says, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and, on, and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever then the four living creatures said amen and the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever and the final word that's in our benediction from Peter it says to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever amen Do we understand what amen means? I think we know that it's an emphatic endorsement. I think we know that it means so be it, most certainly true, in truth. But do we understand that Jesus said it often? And a lot of times in our translations, and I'm a New King James guy, so it's not in here. I had to look at the original language. You look in a lot of our translations, you don't see it, but whenever you see Christ, maybe on the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 6, maybe Matthew chapter 7, where he says, Assuredly, I say to you, the word assuredly in the Greek is amen. Amen, I say to you. And it's listed in verse 18 of chapter 5. Verse 26, chapter 6, verse 2, 5, 16. In Matthew chapter 25, when Christ was telling about the separation of the sheep and the goats, and the sheep were, were set aside to his right, and he said, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. And they said, Well, what did we do? And he said, for you did this. And he went through a list of, of the fruit of the Holy Spirit that was borne out by these people represented as sheep. And they said to him, the king, Christ on his throne, they said, when did we do all these things? And it says in verse 40, it says, the king shall answer and say to them, assuredly, I say to you, amen, Christ says, I say to you, Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. What an awesome, awesome benediction from Peter. As we get a chance to conclude, and, and guys, if you want to come on up. Peter, with a heart that has been so powerfully, powerfully touched with the grace, mercy, and love of Jesus pours out this magnificent blessing upon his fellow believers. For those of you that might be here this morning that have not chosen to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you've heard the invitation, you've heard the pattern which God designs, you've heard the the power which he displays, and you've heard the praise which he deserves. There's one solemn truth for those that have not surrendered your life 
to Christ. And in Acts chapter 17, verse 31, it says, God has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And he said, he has assured everyone of this by raising him from the dead. Jesus will be he who judges the world in righteousness. And it's only his righteousness that counts. So drop your own. Come to Christ. And before we sing, let's pray over each other this morning over our own brothers and sisters here at Calvary Chapel of Crook County. Peter's wonderful blessing that says, May the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after we have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle us. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.